you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 15. We're going to cover a lot of territory, and you'll see why in a moment as we get through, again, more of the conversation between Job and his friends. But as we do that, I want to take a brief look at what is the real problem we face in the book of Job? You know, we talk about it's the problem of suffering, and yes, in, in a way it is. It definitely is. It's the problem of Job's friends, and yeah, they were a problem. But the real problem we face here, and again, we think it is sometimes is this and it's not, the real problem is not the reality and experiences of life contradict the revelation in the faith and the truth of Scripture. And you look at Job, and that's kind of what Job's struggling with. He's looking at what he finds, and again, he didn't have all this book written for him at that time, but everything he had learned about God, all the truth that he had in this basket over here, didn't seem to be matching up with the truth of life and the reality that he saw. And the problem isn't that there's a contradiction, but the problem is our revelation is sometimes limited. And we need to realize that. Now, don't take that wrong. God has told us enough. God has given us everything we need to live lives of godliness before him. But God hasn't told us everything. You ever study through this book and you come up with a question that you can't find the answer to? You know, I kind of sit there with fear and trembling when you all are looking and can't find a question because then you bring me the question. And there's times, and I love it when I have the answer, but there's times when I have to look at folks and say, that's a great question because God doesn't really give us that answer. It's somewhat humbling because we like to know it all. We like to know all of the answers. We like to be the one who has everything figured out. The older I get, the more I'm enjoying the fact that my kids no longer, well, most of my kids, no longer think I'm just dumb. They'll call me with questions. Unfortunately, it's mostly car questions. And I keep telling them I don't know as much as they think I know. But it's so much fun when I say, this is what I think it is. Take it to your mechanic. They take it to the mechanic, and my son will call me back. And he's really quiet. He goes, I'm just amazed. You know what the mechanic told me? The same thing you did. Because we like to know, and I get all proud, and it's probably, it's probably wrong, but you know, you're proud of it. I got that one right. But we want to do the same thing with the Bible. We want to always know what's going on. And when we look at the book of Job, the problem is, does Job know everything that's going on? No, and what he doesn't know is shaking his faith. But on the other hand, Job has three friends come to visit him. Do Job's three friends know everything that's going on? No, they don't, and it doesn't shake their faith. They shake Job's faith while it's already shaken because they don't have all those pieces together. And so what's the answer? What do we do when we're dealing with difficult circumstances, unexplainable suffering in our lives, and we don't have all the answers? I thought about that because we've gone through already 14 chapters of the book of Job, and we don't really have that answer yet, do we? And the reason we're looking through this is to find out where do people search for the answers? Did Job's friends think they had the answer? Yeah, they did. We're going to see it again this week. They beat Job over the head with their answer. Were they right? No, God's going to set them straight at the end of the book. Did Job have the answer? No, Job had all the questions. And Job's struggling because it's just his theology isn't fitting with his reality and he can't put the two together and he knows something's wrong and he wants God to explain it and he really feels like God's done him wrong but he knows he can't go too far down that road without accusing God of being unjust and he doesn't want to do that but in his spirit he's almost there. And so Job is struggling with this. So what do we do? 
We're going to find, and what I want you to look at as we begin in chapter 15, and especially when we get to the last four or five chapters of this book, look for God's answer to that question. God's going to answer that question. Just a few things quickly. You know, they're, they're misconceptions. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, period. And it sounds good, and we, we've, had, we've had messages on that. The problem is when you put the period there. Generally, God does bless those who are obedient, and God judges those who are disobedient. But are there evil, wicked people in this world that are getting rich? That shouldn't happen in Job's friends' minds. Are there evil, wicked people that are the healthiest people you've seen? They live to 100 years old. Is that right? Not in Job's friends' minds. And Job is bought into that whole thing, even though he started with good theology in the beginning of this book. And then, if you're experiencing bad things instead of good things, then you just need to repent and get right with God, and everything will be back the way it was. Doesn't that sound like wonderful theology? That's what Job's hearing from his friends. Is it right? Now, it's right to a point. If you're experiencing bad things because you've been in sin, you do need to repent and get it right with God. But God's never promised that he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise the moment you do. And so we need to look at what's in the scripture. And God's going to talk about all these things at the end of this book. And then for Job, injustice has taken place because incredibly difficult and bad things are happening to him, a good man. And he can't figure out why. Is God going to answer the why? Have you, how many of you read through the whole book? I know some of you have struggled through it, got through the book. Some of you are in the middle of 15 to 30. And I pray that you have the discipline to get through because it is tough reading through this whole book. But when you get to the end of the book, does God show up? They've been asking for that for, for chapter after chapter. They're going to continue, Job especially, to ask, God, won't you speak to this? And God literally does at the end of the book. So what does God tell Job that the why is of all his suffering? He doesn't. It's like, what's wrong with this book? You, you ever watch a program or a movie, and at the end of the movie, it's over, and you think, wait a minute, they left all those loose ends, and they didn't tie up together for me. Is that one of your favorites? I hate those kind of stories. I hate those kind of books. I hate those kind of things that just leave me hanging. I want to know how it all comes out. You know, Job probably didn't know how it all came out until Job finally was called home to be with God. And so what does God do? God tells Job at the end of this book, and we're going to get there, but he basically tells Job, Job, it's not the why. It's the fact that I was working in your life, and I knew what was going on, and I was to be glorified. And we're going to look at all that as we get to the end of this book. So keep those things in mind. God is going to reveal and remind him of who he is and how he works. God will satisfy neither Job's curiosity nor his demands to know why. Does that feel fair? If you're going through something, do you not feel like God owes you an explanation eventually? Do we not pray for that all the time? God, just show me why. And the fact of the matter is, and the problem is, God's not obligated to show us why god tests our faith to see if we can put our faith into who that's in control of all that god is in control and the wonderful thing as you take the time to read through this book and especially job's responses to his friends even at job's darkest hour he acknowledges that god is in control of this he doesn't like what god's doing he's got a better idea for god than what god's doing but he never is shaken by the fact that god's not in control and we need to remember that God's in control. He knows what's going on. So we honestly just have to remember something very simple. 
we are not in control of all the circumstances of our lives. Have you figured that out yet? Yeah, I'd like to be. I plan. I think I got things under control. And then suddenly God reminds me, you're not in control. I'm in control. But what are we in control of? We may not be in control, in control of the circumstances, but we are always in control of our response. And that's the biggest lesson that God has for Job as he goes through this book. And so here we are with Job, and Job is going to learn that his relationship with God is more important than anything else in which he's placed his hope. So we'll look at these things as we go through the rest of this book. Now, for today, we're going to go quickly through chapters 15 through 18 to lay the foundation for chapter 19. Chapter 19 is one of the most profound and exciting chapters in the book of Job. Job's still struggling, but Job says something prophetically in chapter 19 that reflects on the whole rest of the book and how God, and not only the book of Job, but the book of the Bible itself and how God is going to interact with his people. And it's a wonderful thing when you see it. But before we get there, we're going to see here, putting our faith in the proper place is critical. It's critical. Job's friends aren't quite there. Job's not quite there, even though he loved God, even though he was blameless. And the first thing we see, again, is the failure of faulty friends. You have any faulty friends? Yeah, those friends maybe that mom would have told you, maybe you shouldn't be listening to so-and-so because they're always getting you into trouble. Well, Job's friends weren't there to get him into trouble, but Job's friends got him into trouble. When you look at this book, you think, why, God, did you take all of these chapters about these discussions between Job and his friends? Couldn't we have done that in three chapters and gotten to the good part? But what God is showing us is, is the impact even of the counsel that we can get from our friends if it's not quite right. Because what happens is, in the beginning of this book, Job's struggling. He looks, he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Job's right. He says, should we not receive bad things from the hand of the Lord as well as good? Job's right. He reflects on that and he says, you know what, but I don't like the bad things I've gotten. and It doesn't seem like I deserve that. And his friends come to comfort him. And what his friends do, speech after speech after speech, is impose a false theology on Job that causes him to say things he probably never should have said. Now, as he says those, again, the interesting thing is, does Job ever say anything impugning God? He gets close. But he says a lot of things impugning his friends for their, their problems, for their bad theology, for their lack of understanding. But they're constantly pushing him. Does Job get a little bit testy and nasty with his friends? Yeah, he does. And his friends get testy and nasty back. It gets really ugly. You ever been in a room with a couple of friends arguing about something? If I was there with Job and his friends, I could see myself just backing out of the room very slowly. You know, I, it gets very uncomfortable. Well, it's going to get more and more uncomfortable because they're going to lose their patience with Job. They're going to lose their patience with their friend. And in chapter 15, Eliphaz, one commentator put it this way, he takes the gloves off. Remember Eliphaz and his eloquent speech and how he praised Job and then he kind of sandwiched in there, well, Job, you got some issues. You know, something's wrong in your life and you better get it right. And then he said a nice couple other nice things about Job and finished his speech. And now his friends have all spoken and Job has refuted all of what they said, not taking anything to heart. And, and Job, Eliphaz no longer addresses Job with sympathetic reasoning in chapter 15. He takes the gloves off, and basically what he does, in an impatient and undiplomatic way, he lets Job know what he thinks of him. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 2. He calls him an audacious windbag. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Isn't that a wonderful poetic piece of, uh, of literature? 
He said, Job, you're nothing but you're full of hot air. You, you don't see what we're telling you, and you keep talking. You need to be quiet and listen to us. He says in verse 4, but you're doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Your own mouth condemns you in verse 5, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So he looks at Job and says, you know, Job, maybe it's time to just be quiet, because nothing you're saying is doing, helping your case out at all. And then, not only that, but he calls him an arrogant know-it-all in chapter 15, verses 7 through 10. In verse 8, he says this, Have you listened to the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know, and what do you understand that is not clear to us? So Eliphaz looks at him and says, You're not as smart as you think you are. We're just as smart as you are. The problem is the whole lot of them weren't as smart as God, and they didn't have the knowledge they needed to figure it out. And so here Eliphaz is getting under his friend's nerves again. And then he says in verses 11 through 13, what you're saying has no respect for God. Verse 11, are the comforts of God too small for you? Are the word that deals gently with you? Now think about what Eliphaz is saying there because I think we've all been here once or twice in our lives. When you're really struggling, would you say, God, your comforts just, they they don't meet the mark. You don't, you don't do what you're supposed to be doing. You failed here. We probably wouldn't pray that, but you ever feel like, God, couldn't you send me more comfort right now than I've got? You almost feel like God has shortchanged you a little bit. And that's what his friends, that's what you're talking about, Job, here. And then Eliphaz, Eliphaz is an interesting guy because he knows what he knows. He knows that the wicked get punished and the good people get blessed and Job's getting punished, so that makes Job wicked. It's good, it's good reasoning, but it's faulty. And so Eliphaz is going to spend the rest of chapter 15 beating on those things. And the thing is, Eliphaz cannot even admit the fact that frequently, when we look at the world around us, evil people are prospering and good people are suffering. You ever seen that? You ever wonder why? God, why would this good Christian lady be struggling with her health and this nasty woman who lives in my neighborhood who curses your name is 90 years old and still runs up and down the neighborhood walking every day? What's wrong with this picture? And we look at these things, and Eliphaz would not even acknowledge that. He never. That's Job's biggest question. He looks at his friends and says, explain this to me. Explain how a man who's trying to live righteous before God and be blameless and fears God ends up where I end up, and they're not answering his question. And Eliphaz is just beating him over the head one more time, and while he's doing that, he's growing very impatient. Verses 6, chapter 16 and 17. Job's going to fire back. He's had enough. Okay, and just stay with me for about five more minutes. We're going to be through all these chapters and then into 19 where Job is really going to hit the heart of this. Job 16 and 17, Job looks and he says... In 16, verse 2, I have heard many things, such things that miserable comforters are you all. Now think about that from Job's friend's perspective. Okay, we're busy beating up Job's friends now, and by this time, we're really irritated with Job's friends. We're concerned for Job. Job's really in a low place, and his friends need a kick in the seat of the pants. So what does Job do? He gives them that kick in the seat of the pants. Because what did they come for? If we go all the way back to the first couple of chapters, why did God say those men came? They came to provide sympathy and comfort. You know, and it's like, please don't do this, but it's like if at the end of struggling with a passage and preaching a message and standing at the back of the aisle and greeting people as you go by and everybody looks at you, shakes their hands, and says, that was one lousy message, Pastor. I don't know what you were thinking. 
You know, what was, it's, it probably I need the humbling at times, but it doesn't do anything. For, well, these guys, have, are, they've got, they put out money to be there with Job. They spent seven days sitting there with Job saying nothing in support of Job and what he was doing. They've done their best to correct Job so he could get life right, even though they were wrong. And Job looks and says, you know what? You guys are a bunch of miserable counselors. You're terrible at comfort. He goes on and he says here, and verse 4, if I were in your place, in case you think you're doing a wonderful job, I could do the same thing you're doing. Look at verse 4. I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Job gets what's going on, and he's like, I'm not getting any comfort. You're accusing me of being a rotten guy. He's like, I really don't need you guys any more than my wife coming out saying, curse God and die. Job's friends are falling apart around him. And then in verse 5, this is the thing that really should have cut into the heart of his friends, and I'm not sure it did. But in verse 5, he said, you know, if I were in your place, I would try to help you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Job looks and said, all I wanted was a little relief from my pain, and all you've given me is more. All I wanted is somebody to provide some comfort for me, to strengthen me. And all you've done is tear me down. And it's almost like he's on the ash heap, so I don't know how he would do this, but he wants to show him the door. You know, there's the door. Use it, please. Because you're not helping. And then Job goes on to say, this is where I really am. And Job, from the bottom of his heart, just quickly through the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through 22, he says, God has shriveled me up. You know, I'm physically, I look terrible, I'm in trouble. He said he's torn me in pieces like a, a beast rent on revenge. Like a lion just tearing apart its prey. He's looking at himself and he's saying, his eyes, God's eyes looking at me are like shooting daggers, 16 verse 9. And the idea there in the, the Hebrew is God's just glaring at me. You ever have that teacher? We, we had a teacher, we call it the evil eye. As junior hires, we knew when we'd crossed the line. She was a good teacher, but when she'd had enough, she would just look at you a certain way. It was daggers. It was glaring. And Job's looking and saying, I'm getting that from you, God, and I don't understand why. Job's misinterpreting, but that's what he feels like he's getting. Again, chapter 11, he's saying, I feel like God, like a lion, is taking me from by the back of the neck and is just shaking me around. He's in a low place. He goes on to say that God set him up for his archery practice. It's like, God, you set me up as a target and you keep shooting arrows into me and, and I, I've had enough. I can't take anymore. To the, the fact, when you get to the end of the chapter, verses 15 through 22 of chapter 16, Job just basically says, you know, it's kind of pathetic, but it's undeserved. I don't know what to do with it. I'm struggling. Now he's telling this to friends who have no sympathy for him anymore. Chapter 17. God has withheld understanding from my mockers. That's the whole thing in chapter 17. He looks at these friends and those around him looking at his life that's been destroyed and say, for some reason, God's not letting you get it. I don't deserve this. I am a blameless man. And it shouldn't be happening to me. And despite his humiliation, he clings to his righteous ways. Look at 17, verse, chapter 17, verse 9. Chapter 17 and verse 9 Job says the following, Yet the righteous holds to his ways, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. The amazing thing when we look at Job and what we're about to look at is that going through all of these trials, does Job ever just say, you know what, if that's what God's like, I don't believe he's there, or I don't want any part of it, and I'm going to walk away. Does Job get anywhere close to that? 
Because many of us, many people I've talked to say, you know what, this happened in my life, and if God's a God like that, then I've just had it. Job's looking and saying, God, I need your blessing, and if, if this is what's going to be your hand on my life, then just take me home. But he never says, God, I've just had it, I don't believe you're there. I don't believe it pays to be righteous. He believes in all that still as he continues to go through all these troubles. And Job's word teaches us that our perception of God's posture toward us and our circumstances can be so far wrong that if we're not careful, we impugn his character. And that's where Job's friends are right when they look at Job and say, Job, you're accusing God of not being just. You're accusing God of not being God. And so we have to be careful, but if anyone in all of history, had an excuse for misinterpreting God's actions toward him. It was Job, wasn't it? Job was blameless. Job feared God. Job got nothing but trouble and turmoil in his life as a result when Satan was unleashed upon him. And you could say, Job, you know, if anybody gets an excuse, God doesn't give it to him. If anybody doesn't have an excuse for thinking that way, it's you and me. Because we know the story. We know the end of the story. So when we get to where Job is, we've got less excuse than Job. Because God told us things that Job didn't know as Job was going through it. And we need to keep that in mind. And then Bildad, the last one we're going to talk about this morning, chapter 18. After his customary insults at the beginning of his speech there, getting back with Job and trying to set things straight. Chapter 18, you go all the way to verse 21, and this is the goal of his last speech. He says in chapter 18, verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. We're not going to take the time to read through all the way through chapter 18. I hope you do. But as we go through chapter 18, we see a picture of Bildad's explaining what happens to the wicked. How does God treat the wicked? What does God do in the life of the wicked? And then at the end, he finishes it very eloquently with this double innuendo phrase. Such is the way of the wicked and those who forsaken God. And he's talking about the wicked, but who's he really talking to? Saying, Job, that's what happens when you're wicked. So quit being wicked. Job, this is what happens when you've forsaken God. And that's exactly what Job's been fighting against. So Bildad still doesn't get it. And we get to chapter 19. And chapter 19 is an amazing place because chapter 19 is about Probably the best way to put it is beginning to try to find the proper focus. Job doesn't quite get there, but he starts in the right direction. Although he doesn't start the chapter that way. Job's friends have thrown all these accusations at him. Job basically said, how long are you going to keep tormenting me? And then he goes on to say in verse 6, God has trapped me in his net, and I don't know why. Verses 10 and 11, he understands that the problems are coming from God. God has done this in my life, but I don't understand why. He goes on and talks about out of the isolation of his cries, he's looking for pity from his friends, and he's getting none. God himself is on his trail, feels like he's being chased and hounding him. And Job asks again, why are you hounding me? What more can you do? And then in verses 23 and 24, turn over to there, 19, 23 and 24, Job says something very prophetic. Now, I doubt Job knew what he was saying when he said this. And we'll talk about why we feel that way, because the next four or five verses are that way. But in verse 23 and 24, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Guess what? That's what we're reading. God said, okay, I can do that. This is a great lesson for everyone. He goes on and says, Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. Now, why did God do that? 
Because in our human frailty, we wind up where Job is quite often. Because some of us may have some lousy friends who may have the good intentions, but they just don't know how to lead us back to where God really is in things. But why did Job want that? That's why I say it's prophetic. I don't think Job knew he was being prophetic. Job's saying, oh, that my words were written down so that everybody would see that I am innocent and I don't know why God did me wrong. That's what he's looking for. But is God using that situation? Have you learned anything from the book of Job? I hope you've been able to take something away. I I started this book and I wondered, you know, how's this going to happen? I'm learning things every week. Like, I'm learning a lot that I don't share with you because I don't want to keep you here till 3 in the afternoon. But as you go through this book, the way God works and the way we respond to it is all over this book. And he's li- literally left it to us for that. But then we get this tremendous and magnificent burst of faith in the next couple of verses. If you're not there yet, turn to chapter 19 and look at verses 25 through 27. It says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job looked and he said, as much as things seem so hopeless, where's his hope? I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, as Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, who's he talking about? You know, we, we immediately go, to, oh, he's talking about Jesus Christ. In context, probably not. Yes, but probably not. You say, well, have you lost your mind? No, let's talk about it for just a minute. Who does Job think is going to vindicate him? God. Who has Job been appealing to throughout this entire scriptural section? God. How much of the scripture does Job have at this point? Very little. Does Job understand that there needs to be a payment for sin? Yes, he was involved sacrificing for himself and his whole family. Does he understand everything there is about a Messiah who's going to die on a cross? Probably not. So be careful when we read back in, but we can't read out of this because of the fact that we look at this and I would tell you that I believe Job is a prophet. You say, well, where do you get that? Look over at James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. James says in James 5, 10, and 11, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So, say, okay, but that doesn't say Job. Not yet. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What does James tell us about Job? There's prophecy in this book. And I think chapter 19 is one of the greatest when he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He's looking at God, but he's actually going to find out later on in that prophecy, we're going to find out who is that Redeemer who liveth. Why did he put it that way? He put it that way because Job is prophetically pointing toward the Messiah, whether he knows it or not. You say, well, how could he prophesy whether he knows it or not? You know, 1 Peter, Peter talks about that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And then we're going to look a little bit at this Redeemer as we close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, tells that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So is there prophecy in the Old Testament about the salvation that we'll have in Christ? It's all over the Old Testament. Did the prophets always understand exactly what was going on and have all the theology to the last nth degree figured out when they prophesied? What Peter is saying, no, they didn't. 
He goes on and he says this. They searched for it. They wanted to know more. Inquiring what person or the time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And that word Christ means Messiah. And so the prophets were writing down what the Spirit of God moved in them. And then they said, now, Spirit, what does this mean? It's not that they understood it all. They wanted to. They wanted to know. They realized it was so key. And verse 12 says to us, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You. Me and you. And the things that they had been announcing to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. There are all kinds of things in the prophets that we look back and we say, wow, that's Jesus Christ. That's how he works. That's how he ministered. That's what he did for me. But when the prophets wrote them, they didn't get it. Remember the disciples? Three years traveling with the Messiah. In fact, during that three-year time, did Jesus ever try to give them what the gospel was really all about? Did he tell them he was going to die? He did. Did he tell them he was going to be dead for three days and rise again? He did. Did they get it? They didn't. We can be so thick sometimes. And you say, yeah, I don't know why they didn't get it. Don't be so proud. You wouldn't have gotten it either. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to march in and take the Romans out and set up his kingdom. And even in that Passion Week, you had some of his closest disciples saying, okay, Lord, we just came through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They didn't call it Palm Sunday then, but on Palm Sunday and had all of this force behind us. Now? Is now when you're going to set up your kingdom? And what did Jesus Christ tell them? You know, my kingdom's not here. Was it now? Yeah, it was about to be set up. All right, the kingdom in the heart was about to be solidified through Calvary. And so we look at these things that they may not have known, but we should know a Redeemer. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And deliverance he would bring. Why was Job excited about a Redeemer? Because he was going to be delivered by his Redeemer somehow, some way. He couldn't understand how, but he keeps saying, if only I could get an audience with God, God could set this straight. He still has faith. He still believes. And when we look at the Redeemer... Peter put it in that verse we already read, concerning this salvation. So what is this salvation that's going to be brought by a Redeemer that Peter's speaking about and that Job prophesied of? You go back to 1 Peter just before this, verses 3 through 9, and Peter talks about it. He says, this is what the Redeemer is bringing. This is why Job could have hope. Blessed be the God and Father, chapter 1, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all about being born again. Because Jesus Christ arose. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And Peter looks and he says, the important thing in that in my life is that if I am born again. Now we've got another one of those phrases. You ever look as a Christian and been going around and just tell somebody, you need to be born again. Do people get that in our day and age? They didn't get it in his either. Remember Nicodemus? He had all kinds of questions. We'll talk about it briefly in a moment. But we've got to get the crux of what does it mean to be born again? Because those who are born again have a living hope. Those who are not born again do not. It is critical that we understand what that means. Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus, he came, he said unto Jesus, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God and that everything you do is from God because God is with you. And Jesus answers him and says this to him. He didn't even say thank you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus for one reason. He'd seen miracles. He knew something was up. He didn't want to miss out on the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus wasn't going to get sidetracked in anything that had been done. He went right to the heart of the matter and he said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You can be a good Pharisee. You can know all the Torah. You can teach and train the people. But unless you're born again, it doesn't mean anything. Can we put it in our vernacular? You can come to church. You can put money in the offering plate. You can read your Bible during the week. But unless you're born again, it doesn't matter. It's not going to give you what you need in Jesus Christ. And so, again, Nicodemus looks at it. How can a man be born when he's old? I get that everybody, more and more every day. And if you feel old, and if you wish you could be born again, now there's, there's areas of my life I wouldn't want to have to go through again. But I look and I see Nicodemus is looking and his, his wheels are turning, but he's thinking physical, not spiritual. And so Jesus tells him here, you can't enter back into your mother's womb, but unless one is born of the water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Don't marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. As we finish discussing this this morning, I would be remiss if I didn't share with you again. You must. You must be born again. Because your eternal destiny hinges upon it. Where you stand before God hinges upon that. Whether or not you are good or bad. And Job's been struggling with this, all this good and evil. And Jesus Christ is going to come to take care of all of the evil and the sin. But he's going to say, this is what it takes to have a right relationship restored. And that's what Job wants. Don't miss that in the book of Job. Job probably would have been happy, and he's actually going to get a lot of his goods back. He would have been happy to have his family back. But what does Job long for? A right relationship with God. And his Redeemer that liveth is here, even before Nicodemus is saying, you can have that if you're born again. So the question means, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Most of us know this next verse that he gets to with Nicodemus. Some of us don't realize it was in the conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ said, Nicodemus, it's about what you do with me because I'm going to die. God gave his son. So what do you, how do you know he's going to die? You look back two verses in John 13, 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believes in him may have everlasting life. Again, without going too deep into it, the whole story, the people of Israel are going through the wilderness. They're complaining. They're sitting before God. So God sends serpents, poisonous serpents, to bite them, and they're dying. They're dying by the thousands. And Moses intercedes for the people, and God says, this is what I want you to do. And again, did Moses know why he was doing this? Did Moses know he was prefiguring what Jesus Christ would do on the cross? No, but God did. And he knew we'd look back at it one day. He said, you make a bronze serpent on a pole, and you lift it up. And if people look, they will live. And if they don't look, they will die. See, that's too simple. Can you imagine Moses? Lord, it's going to take time to make this serpent. And people are dying. Isn't there something they can take? Isn't there something you can do? He says, the only way to do it is to look and live. And Jesus Christ is reminding Nicodemus, I am going to hang on that cross. And if you don't look to me in faith as your only hope before God for forgiveness of sin because of my shed blood, if you don't come and put your faith and trust in me and me alone, then you have no hope. You need to look. You need to look and live. He's going to reiterate it in verse 36 of this chapter when he says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It's not just for the people we think are good people. You know, some of us who are bad people need that more than some of the people we look and say are good people. We all need that. That whoever does this, 
You never go to it and say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have the right password. You don't have the right color skin. You don't have the right background. You don't have the right pedigree. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Put your faith and trust in him and be born again by the Spirit of God. But then he goes on and says this. There's a warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Don't ever walk through life believing the lie of Satan that we are all the children of God. We are not. We sinned. And the Bible tells us that unless we look and live, we are the children of the devil. John chapter 8, look it up later. And we need to come to Christ if we want to be children of God. We need to look to Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's not what we do. It's not anything we can provide for ourselves. It's all in what He provided for us. And we need to look, believe, and live. Have you done that? Because it's a very personal thing. Remember, Job? I know that my Redeemer liveth. It was personal for Job. He looked at Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, you, though you're very spiritual, you must be born again. And whoever does this will receive eternal life. And whoever just rejects it, ignores it, or lives life for himself instead of turning to Christ, the wrath of God remains on him. Were you here for the study of Revelation? You don't want the wrath of God remaining upon you. So what are you going to do with this? What was he supposed to do with this? The wonderful thing is it just very quickly... Peter goes on to explain what we have in Christ. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, getting back there again, he says, Because of this salvation, we have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, fading not away, kept in heaven for you. God has a special inheritance for you, including everlasting life. And he said, Who by God's power are being guarded and kept through faith and salvation? God keeps and protects us as his children. You can't lose that salvation once you look and live, but you don't get it until you do. And it goes on to tell us here, in this, and if in this you rejoice. And I looked at this thinking, this is all tied with Job, and isn't it very interesting? He said, you want to be joyful again? You know the message that Job needed was what he had cried out, my Redeemer lives, and I shall stand before him, and I shall see him, and everything will be as it should be. Because it says here in verse 6, in this you rejoice that for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What's Peter saying? You're going to suffer in this life. It's going to be for a little while. Does it feel like a little while when you're the one suffering? You want to know how little while it is? Some of you, some of you are too young for this exercise. Some of you need to think back to when you were 20. Can you remember? Remember what life was like? I remember getting married. I remember having children. I remember older people. You old people, you're all downers all the time. You know, they come to me and they say, enjoy those kids because they're going to be gone before you know it. And there were days I thought, I hope they're right. They're driving me crazy. But you know what? My oldest turned 33. And my youngest is in her mid-20s. When did that happen? And we're going to suffer the same way. It's for a little bit of time at times because God's at work. He has a purpose. And we can rejoice in knowing that God is doing his will and his way. And he says at the end of verse uh, 6 and 7, that you may be found in the result in the praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the why of Job's suffering. Here's the why of yours. That Jesus Christ may be honored and glorified, not because we controlled our circumstances, but by how we responded. How are you responding to the circumstances of life? Are you clinging to your Redeemer? Are you clinging to God even in the midst of difficulties and to Christ and saying, whatever it takes to glorify you, take me through this? Most of us say what? Take me out of this. God's saying, 
Can you trust me to take you through this? And can you glorify me with all this? You'll only be able to do that if you're born again. And then the wonderful thing at the end of that passage, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Wouldn't it be sad if you suffered and trusted and at the end of this life you still got condemned? But when we turn to Jesus Christ, God said, I'm going to save your soul for all eternity. Even though you don't deserve it. Even though I don't deserve it. Because of what Jesus Christ did, will you look and live? Will you be born again? That's probably the biggest. I could conclude with all kinds of ideas. I wrote them down, but let me conclude with this. Have you been born again? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Not have you read this book and you try to do good things out of it. That's nice, but it won't save you. Not have you come to church. Not have you done good things for the people around you. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Whoever does that has eternal life. If you fail to do that, the wrath of God will be upon you for all of eternity. Look and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it all ties together. It's amazing to see the way that Job, even with his proclamation in the midst of his suffering, proclaimed the greatest hope and truth that is in all of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you'll help us this morning to examine our own hearts. Number one, to see if we've been born again. And then if we have, Father, to see, are we responding to the difficulties in life the way we ought to, that you might be honored and glorified because you've promised us everything if we'll only follow you. We may not have riches in this life. We may not have comfort in this life, but we will have an eternity with a God who's going to set all things straight for his honor and glory. May we put our faith and trust where it belongs in Jesus Christ today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.